Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. A second summit between the United States and North Korea has been cut short, with Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un walking away from the table suddenly with empty hands. With me to discuss when Trump met Kim too, how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb, is Dr. Ewan Graham. Executive Director of La Trobe Asia and uh, my own venerable dictator. Thank you for joining me, Ewan. Hi there, Matt. There have been many predictions for this summit, but few expected the parties to walk away abruptly without a signing of some sort of agreement or at least a photo op. Can you talk me through what America and North Korea were ultimately hoping to achieve here? I think it's unrealistic to have expected a a standalone deal to emerge from this second summit, but certainly the expectations had to be set higher than Singapore. Singapore was was really the curtain raiser and Trump could, to a certain extent, get away with the fact that this was a more symbolic event. But now harder questions had to be asked in Hanoi whether progress could be made. Uh, and it seemed in the run-up that the deal on the table was was largely going to be around North Korea offering to shutter nuclear um, production facilities in its well-known Yongbyon site in exchange loosely for an American agreement to issue an end of war declaration. We shouldn't discount symbolism. A lot of the gains that North Korea has had out of this process have been symbolic by basically depariahing, if that's a word, Mm. um, Kim Jong-un's status by readmitting him into the community of nations by allowing him to conduct diplomacy in the full limelight. That publicity itself has an important legitimizing function. But Mr. Trump has also expressly walked away from his uh, original commitment to put pressure and to pursue denuclearization with urgency. Now um, he's very clearly signaled that he's in no rush, despite all of the opprobrium directed towards the Obama-era strategic patience Patience is what we've ended up with. Mm. Um, That full denuclearization brief, I think very few experts believed it in the first place, but now there's been a a walking away from, certainly in the administration from the president on down. Yeah, yeah. And Trump said in his press conference afterwards that North Korea wanted full sanctions lifted and sanctions have definitely had a part in it and North Korea has now released their side of the story. So can you tell me what North Korea we're hoping for and uh, whether it was realistic. We have a bit of daylight between the North Korean version of this because there was also a follow-up press conference given by Ri Yong-ho, who's the chief North Korean uh, nuclear negotiator who sat alongside Kim Jong-un in that principals meeting in, in Hanoi. And according to him, they were not seeking full sanctions relief, they were seeking partial sanctions relief, either four or five of the most recent UN sanctions that have been imposed since the latest round of missile and nuclear tests. That's still substantial, but it's worth pointing out that uh, it it doesn't quite add up to the full sanctions relief that the US side claimed. And of course, we have two different versions of the summit. It will take a little bit of time to piece together what exactly was discussed. Mm. But sanctions relief has been a a long-standing North Korean demand. There's no surprise there. They have uh, always wanted to make sanctions relief linked to any progress Uh, on the nuclear file. That's the case uh, under Kim Jong-un as it was under his predecessor. So shouldn't there be an expectation that there be a bit of a peace offering on both sides, that the North Koreans will get rid of some 
nuclear weapons and that some of the sanctions would be eased. Isn't that a good step forward? Because that seems to be, I'm not saying that they had great ideas here, but that seems to be what the North Koreans say they were proposing. Yes, and I think they're telling the truth when they say that this was not going to be a be-all and end-all mm. deal arriving, but rather the next stage in a, in a process. Given the gulf of uh, distrust between North Korea and the uh, United States, one was never going to arrive at an all-singing, all-dancing denuclearization deal. Ri Yong-ho was, was um, direct about that in the press conference, saying that this was the best that could be hoped for at the current stage of US-DPRK relations, given the levels of trust that exist. So let's interrogate that question of how important Yong Byon would have been. Now, the South Korean president, let's mention them, Moon Jae-in has said that Yong Byon would have been a, a major concession on the North Koreans' part and even applied a 70% value on how important it is for North Korea's supply of, of nuclear fissile material. That looks very high to me. Yong Byon is probably nearing the end of its life. It was uh, commissioned back in 1985, thereabouts. Mm -hmm. That plutonium has been uh, removed and reprocessed to supply perhaps 30, 40 warheads worth already. So it's not totally insignificant. If they could close that off, it would stop the production of new fissile material. That's good, but that's not denuclearization or, or anywhere close to it. And it wasn't their only source of material either, was it? Is Indeed. It, yeah. um, we know um, with a very high degree of confidence that there are other facilities scattered around, including um, highly enriched uranium production facilities mm. in North Korea. And let's not forget that time hasn't stood still for um, North Korea on nuclear weapons and missile production. There have been no way of, of actually exposing that to scrutiny or, or to any kind of slowdown. So they've gone into mass production mode of missiles, for all we know, of warheads too. So the value of getting international inspectors, including US inspectors, is it opens the door. And I think North Korea will never fully cooperate with any nuclear agreement. There is always going to be some cheating on the side. That's a given. But what they do do empirically is slow down. And that, I think, certainly is the case empirically looking at the previous US-North Korea agreements, imperfect though they were, mm. although cheating certainly did exist, it stopped short of the full threshold of um, an operational ICBM capability. And in that sense, North Korea is still using the old playbook, which is the nuclear capability is part deterrent, but also part bargaining chip. Yeah, yeah. And the sanctions that they were requesting be lifted... Uh, the value of those far outweighed what North Korea were willing to give up as far as, you know, the economic benefit that lifting those sanctions would bring. Yes, although the economy has continued to actually grow despite sanctions. That's one mm. of the, the mysteries. I think it's also the value that they want of the legitimacy of having the sanctions being lifted. That's what a lot of this is about. It's about a decision that's taken from North Korea, from Kim Jong-un, at the beginning of 2018, that they had rolled out their capability to the level that they were comfortable with, and that this was a step change, a step change that brought a full-on engagement with the outside world, mainly the United States, but also, let's not forget, he's been to China three or four times since. Mm -hmm. Now he's been to Singapore, he's been to Vietnam. So as he sort of walks the world stage, that is a, a goal in its own right. So as a result of this summit, there doesn't seem to be a total collapse in relations caused by the walking away, and we're not going to return to the days of fire and fury. 
But at the same time, there seems to be very little benefit in the outcome to the US in dealing with North Korea like this, while North Korea seems to be walking away from this in a stronger position. I'm not sure that's the case, although you know this clearly does look like it's a failure of the summit. I think the United States position is stronger than North Korea's. North Korea, we should not forget, has perhaps a, a one-off opportunity with this president in particular. The cards have aligned um, in an extremely propitious way for Kim Jong-un. He's been very skillful in how he's played this. But Donald Trump presents uh, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Kim Jong-un. Given the difficulties that Trump is facing domestically, that may be a door that once closed, it's very difficult to reopen. So I'm rather beware of saying that um, that Kim Jong-un has, has empirically won this. And I even wonder on that long train ride home whether he'll be privately ruining that missed opportunity and having just set the bar a little bit too high if he'd gone for something less that Trump may have, uh, have, have gone for that. And he would have ended up with the end of war declaration that you said was symbolic, but there are also important flow-on effects from that. If the end of war has been officially admitted by the United States, then why are US troops in, in South Korea if there's mm. no hostile relationship? So what role could Bolton have been playing at that table because his presence there was unexpected? Absolutely. I think the role of Bolton is absolutely essential in this summit. He was a surprise attendee. He had been concentrating on Venezuela before um, coming out and his arrival clearly got the North Koreans caught them by surprise to the extent that the format was unbalanced at the table. There was one extra unoccupied seat at, um, opposite John Bolton. Whether his role was the role of a backstop or a spoiler depends on your view of the US president and Bolton himself. But it's a good as illustration of, of the fact that history turns on, on small things and how, how that meeting went up until Bolton's arrival and how it went after. I think it points to a clear human juncture Bolton clearly did play a role here in, I think, making sure that Trump did not settle for a bad deal. And that is an outcome that I think should be remembered, that a, a bad deal is worse than no deal at all. But whether Bolton was actually playing a, a role beyond that as a, a saboteur of a process that might have gained traction otherwise, that I think is the way that um, the South Koreans and the North Koreans are both likely to look at this. So his role, I think, is is absolutely essential. And going forward, if we are going to get some sort of a repeat of this process, he will always be there, if you like, like a, a cobra in the chandelier waiting to come down. And some would say he is the cobra that's acting in defense of U.S. interests. Others would say that given the very low trust levels between the United States and North Korea, would never be able to unfold unless both sides are willing to take a genuine leap of faith. The United States needs to play the role of the, the big actor and, uh, and give something first. This summit, I think, also played out unpredictably. The mood music between the North Koreans and the United States up until that point had been very positive. Many would say that the positivity that Trump exudes was counterproductive and embarrassing. But nonetheless, it seemed to be moving towards at least a position where we'd end up with a, a statement, a photo opportunity, probably declaration around the end of the, the Korean War. So this was a surprise. But now the mood music is Willie Nelson. <laughs> uh, 
uh, it, it will be hard to get them back together but the process to answer your question is not dead yeah but the timeline for trump's ability to use his political capital is not infinite and that door is also potentially closing in washington with the release of the Mueller report the ongoing testimony of of cohen which clearly set the a very troubling backdrop to trump's arrival in hanoi he needs a foreign policy success um, but his ability to sell that above the objections of those in his own administration and Congress is mm. going to decline. And how much of a nuclear playbook is North Korea writing for any aspiring dictators out there? Because it seems to be proving the effectiveness of having nuclear weapons in getting attention at the negotiating table, or at least getting a seat at the negotiating table. So North Korea has done what no other rogue state has done it's it's got to the threshold of a a nuclear capability that can directly threat the u.s homeland were it not for that kim jong-un certainly wouldn't have the seat at the table with donald trump iran for example fell short of that they were not prepared in the end to risk confrontation with uh, the united states israel too of going through a a, a nuclear threshold kim jong-un has done that and brought it out into the open in a way that Kim Jong-il never did. But is that victory for North Korea? One might say now that uh, things are looking rosy for Kim Jong-un, that he's managed to secure the survival of his regime, uh, he's attracted legitimacy to himself, and that the denuclearization agenda now is, is um, if not dead, much harder to resurrect. That's significant. But on the other hand, Kim Jong-un hasn't really resolved the trap that his grandfather set for North Korea in in launching the nuclear program in the first place. If North Korea is truly to open up and develop its economy, can it maintain an open policy that abandons an enemy relationship with the United States? That's maybe a a more long-term philosophical question for Kim Jong-un in in going down the, the nuclear path. It's very hard to see how North Korea could, for example, give up one nuclear weapon. If it were to do so, it would compromise the technical security of its uh, weapons design. Mm. Uh, And hence, North Korea may fall back on the old playbook of trying to sell the old horse for a third time, Yongbyon, which is uh, at the end of its operational life. But those concessions, I think, are, are still well short of anything that could be taken as a a good faith step towards full denuclearization. I think the sad truth is once that nuclear genie is fully out of the bottle, it can't be put back in. Uh, just as a final question, and I want to turn my attention to what this is doing in the um, Northeast Asian region. Uh, Nick Bisley's written today in The Interpreter about this. Uh, the US has managed to alienate allies along the way. It has ignored Tokyo and needlessly frustrated South Korea. Viewed from Beijing or Pyongyang's perspective, the two summits represent a serious strategic step forward. Their respective geopolitical position has been improved and the US prestige has been damaged. How is just engaging with North Korea like this, in your opinion, changing the relationship between countries in that area? It's certainly come at a cost of the credibility of the alliances. It doesn't mean that deterrence is dead. We shouldn't forget that. Nuclear deterrence still exists between the United States and North Korea directly, but also through the extended deterrence framework 
of which Australia and South Korea and Japan are all part. They haven't gone to the nuclear stage that uh, Pakistan and North Korea have, despite both being closely aligned to China, because they don't have that trust in their ally. The United States still has that advantage, but we talk increasingly about the risk of decoupling, and that decoupling will only grow over time as it becomes clear that uh, North Korea has a a nuclear wedge that it can use to drive between the United States and its South Korean ally in in particular, but also uh, Japan. That doesn't mean the end of the alliance system, but it certainly asks harder questions of South Korea and Japan and to what level they're willing to cater to their own nuclear security. I don't think we're at the point yet of uh, those countries seeking an independent nuclear capability. But under a different administration, a conservative administration that is less trustful of North Korea in Seoul, I think that certainly is an option. I think the longer term risk with that is once you start the proliferation chain, where does it end? And the more players that you have in that calculation, the more unstable it is. The connection I'd make is back to the other nuclear crisis that we've seen unfolding in the last week, where we have two fully developed, declared nuclear powers who share a border, India and Pakistan, engaging Mm. in direct combat at a high level. That's obviously a huge risk. And to my mind, it illustrates really where the primary risk of conflict lies in our macro region. South Asia is really the more unstable environment at the moment. North Korea is not irrational. It has not engaged in the kind of terrorist bombing attack cross-border that We've seen in Kashmir that took us up that escalation chain uh, very worryingly last week. And perhaps if there is a positive to this, the fact that the nuclear genie is out of the bottle in North Korea will force North Korea to ask harder questions of itself. Because if it engages in the kind of conventional provocations that it has done in the past, that's going to come at a much greater risk to it too. Because if South Korea and the United States see that, they will be forced to respond and the risk of nuclear escalation ultimately will end up in the destruction of North Korea. So does North Korea finally learn to grow up under the shadow of the bomb? And uh, and on that note, uh, we better bring a close to this conversation and get the podcast online before the situation changes yet again and it's out of date again. So <laughs> thanks very much for your time today, Ewan. You're welcome, man. Uh, You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts or your local friendly neighbourhood podcatching service. You can follow La Trobe, Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe, Asia. Ewan Graham is on Twitter as well. He is at Graham underscore Ewan. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.